Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 through 29. Watch out for yourselves so that you won't forget the covenant Adonai your God with which he made with you and make yourself a carved image, a representation of anything forbidden to you by Adonai your God. For Adonai your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you've had children and grandchildren, lived a long time in the land, become corrupt and make carved image a representation of something and thus done what is evil in the sight of Adonai your God and provoke him. I will call upon the sky and the earth to witness against you today and you will quickly disappear from the land that you are crossing the garden to, to possess. You will not prolong your days, but will be completely destroyed. Adonai will scatter you among the peoples and among the nations to which Adonai will lead you away. You will be left few in number. There you will serve gods which are the product of human hands, made of wood and stone, which can't see, hear, eat, or smell. However, from there you will seek Adonai your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and being. This is uh, one of the passages of Scripture that gives the Torah a bad name. Um, and I'm convinced, folks, that that's the case because people really haven't learned to look beneath the surface. And so I want to pause for a moment for a word of prayer and uh, just ask that the Lord would speak to us. Abba Father, we thank you that you are the God of all mercy, all comfort. Thank you, Lord God, for how you present yourself to us and uh, Lord God, we pray for eyes to see you as you are portrayed in your word. Give us, Lord God, the discernment to be able to reject the lies about who you are. And um, Lord God, we pray that we would walk away from your word today more deeply and more fully in love with you, Lord, for who you are. Speak to us today, we pray, in the name of Yeshua. Amen. If you're new to us, I just want to take a moment and explain that uh, next Saturday evening we'll begin the traditional uh, four days of penitential prayers called Slichot. Slichot comes from Hebrew word Salach, which means to forgive. So these are liturgical prayers um, asking God for his forgiveness in preparation for the holidays. And um, these are prayers that are based on the portrait that we see of God in Exodus chapter 34, 
that according to traditional Judaism presents a uh, God's 13 attributes and, and I have gone over it and I think there are probably more like 12 but I'm not going to argue my point simply is that um, as we pray and by the way our version of Slichot will be significantly different um, most of all because we know that we do have atonement we have assurance of God's forgiveness which by the way is really presented in the Hebrew scriptures in the, the Tanakh, the Old Testament unfortunately that's not something that has always um, come through in traditional Judaism. But scripture tells us, speaks to us about God's goodness. And you've probably heard the, the caricature of the image that's presented of God in the Torah, in the Mosaic law of God being an angry God and then um, in the New Testament, the New Covenant, all of a sudden God changes and becomes this user-friendly, happy-go-lucky kind of a God uh, who is our buddy. And at least for me, I want to say, uh, is God schizophrenic? Uh, bipolar? Um, why is it that we supposedly have one image of God over here in the Torah and all of a sudden in the New Testament we have a totally different image. And my contention, and I, I believe that Scripture proves that, that it's, it's the same God. Amen? It's just that when we see some of the hard statements, we then gloss over what's underneath, and that is that God's mercy endures forever. God's mercy is there, period, even through the difficult times. And I don't know if you noticed, as Paula was reading, this very familiar scripture that is essentially repeated in Jeremiah and is repeated elsewhere, that this idea that as we seek God earnestly, we'll find him. But there was a little phrase there. I don't know if you noticed, but if from there you seek God with all your heart, you'll find him. And you inquiring minds, of course, want to know what the from there is all about. Well, if you've been listening, you know that part of the picture God presents is simply the reality of what happens when we blow it. There are consequences. And in Israel's case, the consequences that God meted out to the nation of Israel only came after he had exhausted every single possible approach to get Israel's attention. And that's where the heavy consequences come in. And even at that point, God says, in that situation where you are in the pit, if you remember your God and you call out and you seek your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. 
I don't know if you have experienced that. I certainly have. And, and just a personal uh, word or a little vignette from my own personal story, I accepted Yeshua as a 13-year-old boy in Jerusalem in a DVBS daily vacation Bible school. And so if you have served in that capacity, let me tell you, um, you're serving the kingdom in a very significant, very precious way, not just because God got a hold of me there. And, And this, by the way, was led by a gal who was a Swiss missionary but, you know, as you know, as, as a child, you really don't get things. You really don't get the profundity of who God is and, and who you are. You know, you're led and uh, you respond and kind of go on. Well, um, from that point on, I, I was really gung-ho. I was very zealous for the Lord. And when I was in high school, I was known as the, the Jew who was for Jesus. You know, this was during the crazy 60s in New York. Uh, and then I came to college. And um, I ran into a buzzsaw. Not because of any big, bad wolf kind of a professor. But you know how it is when, as you grow up, uh, at whatever stage of life the growing up takes place, you go through somewhat of a crisis where you say, okay, I embraced this, I knew this, now I'm, I'm older and I want to know what it's all about. And for one reason or another, I ran into a bunch of confusion and there was nobody else there who would walk me through it. And by the way, here's another commercial. Um, if you have a sense of urging, nudging from God to mentor younger people, that's a precious call. It's a precious call. Um, In any event, at some point, I ended up in spiritual la-la land for six years. You know, I didn't reject the Lord. I didn't go into Buddhism. I, I wasn't a drug pusher. I just was perpetually grumpus. And, uh, had nothing to do with believers and found a great deal of comfort with a bunch of pagan friends. Um, And at some point, somehow, God used a a situation to bring me out of that. And you know what I discovered? Wasn't that on the other end, God was standing there with a club ready to whap me on the head but rather he was welcoming. And that's when I experienced the greater measure for the first time, really, of God's chesed, God's mercy. And this is what we see played out on the pages of the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. It, and that is simply that as we blow it, We have hope, not because of ourselves. We have hope because Abba Father is standing, waiting for us to get over our stupidity. And I'm speaking to myself. Nobody here is is suffering from stupidity. 
No, my point simply is that the greatest times in our life, I believe, are times when we are in a desert or in a pit or in a swamp, dire straits, and we call out to God in desperation, and somehow we experience the fact that the Lord hears us and responds to us. And that's precious because those are mild markers in your life as you're going along the, the journey, you say, okay, back here, I was a mess. And, and God could have nuked me, but he didn't. Instead, he, he welcomed me back and he taught me some basic lessons. And so one of the things we see over and over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy is the command to remember, zechor. Um, it's mentioned about 14 times in the book of Deuteronomy. And as you know, Deuteronomy is given over, is part of Moses' um, reflection and, and explanation of the Torah once again 40 years later as the nation of Israel uh, is up on the, uh, the mountains of Moab overlooking the Jordan Valley in expectation that they're going to come into the land and take possession of the land. And so the whole book is basically preparation for what God wants to do with the people as they go into the land. And that's, by the way, what God does with us when we're in times of transition, when we go from one phase to another or, or one period to another, God prepares us so that, that we are properly prepared as we go from phase to phase. And a big chunk of that, again, is remembering not so much who we are, but remembering where God has taken us from and, and remembering God and what he's done in our life. Verse 20 of this chapter, but as for you, the Lord took you and brought, he, brought you out of iron smelt, smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you are now. If you were to flip back, verse 10, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at, at Horeb. You, you came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to, to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no forms. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant the Ten Commandments which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. For most people who look at, at Mount Sinai from a New Testament perspective, there's really nothing user-friendly about, about that scenario. But in this... Uh, in this particular issue, I believe the rabbis really nail it in that they see what took place on Mount Sinai as God gave the Torah to the nation of Israel as a form of a wedding. And I say, this is kind of bizarre. Well, it really isn't. Do uh, You have a number of steps that parallel what takes place in a wedding. First of all, you have the preparation. The people had to prepare themselves for this very precious, very special time to be in God's presence. 
then there was a form of um, declaration of vows, just like in, in a marriage ceremony. You declare you know, in sickness and health and so on and so forth. The Lord makes his declaration to the nation of Israel. And then the people responded three times over a period of, of, uh, of time. All that you say we will do. Now, uh, Israel um, portrays very human tendency, and that is a very short attention span, that shortly after they say, I do, they say, well, uh, we're not really sure that I do. Uh, this particular God over here is more interesting. So it's been real God. But during this um, ceremony, as it were, the people say, I do. And then there is a marriage certificate of sorts. Uh, if you were to read Exodus 24, you'll see that Moses wrote down the words of the covenant. So you have a number of elements. But again and again and again throughout uh, the Torah and the prophets, God describes himself as Israel's husband. It's a very, uh, very uh, tender kind of an expression which speaks of God's love for the nation. Now, whoever has the gizmo on, would you please um, do something violent to the gizmo so that we're not distracted? Um, if you have a cell phone, turn it off, please. Um, so the point is, um, none of us have been at Mount Sinai. I don't think perhaps one or two of us may have traveled to what people now consider Mount Sinai. But, you know, none of us were there uh, as the mountain was billowing smoke and there was fire and the sound of the shofar and so on. But the truth is, as you go through life, if you're someone who has committed yourself to the Lord, to his lordship, to his mastering your life, you have signed on a dotted line, you said, God... Um, here I am, signed, sealed, delivered. No holds barred. I'm yours. Um, if you have done that, and by the way, if you haven't, let me encourage you to do that. Because having a relationship with God really makes life worth living, doesn't it? But the point is, for us who have done so, as you go through life and as you go through difficult circumstances, you experience God coming in a very special way and breaking through to where you experience the reality of God in, in a new and special way and say, wow, okay, God, I get it. I may not be the brightest bulb in the universe, but you just got my attention. And... Um, I don't know, for some reason, the Lord's been merciful to me, and I, I've experienced that a number of times. And I remember, um, in particular, when I was working um, in, a, uh, in a lab, National Jewish Hospital, and um, again, going back to the past for a minute, I had dedicated my life to serve the Lord in, in a conference, everybody... Uh, you know, 
the organ was playing, every, and there was a challenge, and everybody rushed forward. I rushed forward. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that, that God personally tapped me on the shoulder, but somehow um, I acted, and I, I believe God saw it and heard it and validated it. And then I proceeded to say, okay, God, I have a different plan. And my plan, of course, is better. And, and I, I know that I'm absolutely unique. None of us has ever done anything like that here. And uh, so I, I was working this lab, and I, I ran into, into a brick wall. Um, the job got old. It was boring. And there was no room for advancement and growth. And uh, I did everything I knew how to to get out of that situation. You know, I, I read the, uh, the Bible for uh, resumes, uh, what colors your parachute, and uh, uh, sent out uh, resumes and tried to put the aggressive mode for how you hook up with people, how you present yourself. Nothing. And at some point, it kind of gradually filtered through my brain uh, that maybe my approach wasn't working. And so I had a conversation with God, and I said, okay, Lord, I screwed up. And uh, maybe you have a plan. So I'm, I'm giving control to you where it belongs. And then I waited and waited and waited and waited some more. I kept going to work, and uh, my attitude improved. But at some point, everybody uh, that was, I remember very, very distinctly, one day everybody was gone out of the lab, and I, I was just kind of churning within. It's like, okay, God, what are you doing? Who are you? Where are you? You know, the kind of ruminations I'm talking about. And I very distinctly sensed God was saying to me, I'm going to get you out of here. And from that point on, I was at peace. All the frustration, all the anguish, all the going this way, going that way, going the other way. And sure enough, a few months later, the boss came to me and he was very horribly apologetic. And he said, well, I'm, I don't know how to tell you this. Uh, the grant hadn't been renewed and I have to let you go and I feel horrible about it. And, and I, I said to myself, I didn't say to him, okay, God, you're doing something, and this is going to be good. And that was the beginning of the process that eventually led me to where I am. But it was another one of these mile markers. And it was a time where I have experienced the Lord more fully and more deeply. Now, I, I know this may surprise you because you see someone who stands and proclaims the word of God as occupying some rare stratosphere, rare spiritual stratosphere. Um, the truth is, I have often wondered why, A, why God would pick me, B, why he would talk to me. You know, I, I could always look and find other much more qualified candidates and so I, I've eventually 
come to terms with, okay, God, you have chosen me, and I no longer say, why don't you choose somebody else for change? But my point in all of this is simply to say that these are, for me, snapshots of God's activity, and I remember them, and during times when things are especially gloomy, um, or where things don't seem to advance very much, I look back to, to episodes like that, and it, it is something that, that strengthens within me the unshakable conviction that good things are coming down the pipeline from God. And I hope that everybody here has at least one or more of these mile markers where you can look back on your life and you can remember how God dramatically and decisively worked in your life and somehow got your attention and somehow talked to you in a way that was in your language where you understood it and, and you received it and you chose to follow God according to what he had given you and you experienced blessing. Now, life being what it is, perhaps the next day or the next week or the next month, it seemed like things blew, blew up in your face, but you go back and you look, you remember, zechor. And that's what scripture tells us over and over again, to find these mile markers and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the amazing way in which you got a hold of my attention back here. And to simply say, Lord, just like you did back here, I have confidence that you're able and willing to do much more down the road here, the rest of the journey. And for me, the scripture that, that has been playing over and over and over that I have repeated over and over and over again from Philippians 1.6, we're confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry to completion until the day of Messiah Yeshua. If you don't have this basic expectation, have a chat with God today that he will give you the needed hope because you may be in a point where you're hopeless and we get that way because life comes and uh, smacks us upside the head and threatens to change our perspective on reality. And we can either receive that lie and live accordingly or we can make the choice to say the facts on the ground are difficult. God, you know the facts on the ground are difficult. But you have been at work, and here are some good first fruits that I've seen, that I can see, that I can thank you for, and I have the expectation that you have begun a good work, that you are currently working, and that you will bring the good work that you have in mind into completion. And another scripture that has also come to mind from the construction of the second temple 
the glory of this present house, referring to the first temple, excuse me, to the second temple, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. What that means simply is that if we know who God is, we will have a basic expectation that his work in our life, in us and through us, will continue and will gather steam and will increase, not because we're cool and clever, but because this is who God is. And that is what Moses is calling on the nation of Israel to do. He wants the people to remember what God did for them. Not just that they stop and say thank you, but that, that the things that they were able to observe with their eyes would, would give them a basic grasp of who God is. And this is also something that we see in a Torah again and again and again. God does things and then he says, I'm doing such and such so that they will know that I am God. And, and here at the end of this chapter, you are shown these things, verse 35, you are shown these things that you might know that the Lord is God beside, besides him, there's no other. And God does what he does. Not capriciously because he doesn't know what else to do. He does what he does. Not because he wants to make us suffer. But because he wants to teach us. And folks, reality is sometimes we're slow learners. We don't get it. And we need God to come with us again and again and again and again and again. Verse 36 here, from heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. And by the way, uh, in our culture, the word discipline doesn't con conjure warm fuzzies. But biblically, the word for discipline, musar, has the sense of teaching and and conveying, in, conveying wisdom through discipline. And then as we learn that, as we are willing to receive it, then we say, okay, Lord, I, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to get it. And it lost, at least for me, in my prayer life, and I think this is probably true for all of us, you know, you start out, your, your life in, in how you pray to God as, as one who comes with the laundry list. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, God, um, we've got two and a half minutes, and would you please do this, 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 and this, and don't forget that, and oh, by the way, God, I'm out of here. I got things to do, people to see, etc. cetera. Um, I desperately need for you to do that uh, quickly, please. And at some point, we get the fact that prayer is not a monologue. Not us sitting and rattling at God, but maybe it is a dialogue. Maybe it is 
um, a conversation that God maybe wants to say something to us and, um, and perhaps in the beginning we sit there and we listen and we say, this is boring. I'm not hearing from God. Okay, I'm, I'm out of here. Then perhaps as time goes on, we learn something about, you may sit down, uh, Adoni. Um, eventually we get the fact that what pleases the heart of God is worship. And that worship is the entryway for us to come to God's presence. So that come boldly before the throne doesn't mean that we barge into his throne, but we are delighted to come and bring our worship. And, and we're pleased to be able to give him thanksgiving. And we learn some basics, how-tos as it were, how to welcome God into our sacred space. You know, what people call prayer closet. And that's unique for each of us. But what is true for all of us is simply the fact that if we are wanting to seek God wholeheartedly, he will somehow make a way to reach out to us so that he will bridge the gap. So the burden is not, not, not all on us, but rather he is committed to engaging with us at our level. Why? Because this is who he is. Psalm 25, 8, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them in his way. What does that mean? Well, first of all, good. I mean, tov in Hebrew, you can drive several fleets of Mack truck through this little word tov. Uh, tov basically means that this is God's essential nature, is goodness, and also this is his currency. That's how he deals with people, his preferred mode of dealing with people because he's good and he's straight up because of that because this is who he is therefore he is committed to instructing sinners in his way I can't speak for you I'm definitely one of those that fits into the category of sinners therefore I look at what I, I see here and say okay Lord you're good and upright therefore you instruct sinners that's me so I'm going to wait for you to do that. Now, the, again, the wait is the part that kills us. But remember, scripturally, waiting is not sitting and feeling like you're about to die, but waiting is expecting that God in his time, in his manner, that he will somehow communicate. And as time goes on, we learn more about who God is. And this is really, folks, the, the biggie here. You know, from time to time, I hear folks talking about, well, such and such happened, and I got to know who I am. Well, okay. The big question is not that you got to know who you are. 
but rather that you got to know who God is, and because of that, that you got to know who God is, you understood how you fit together in his scheme of things. But yeah, Moses, he rattles through a number of questions that basically say God is one of a kind. Verse 7, what other nation is so great to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? You know, again, this is the God is an angry God kind of a passage in Scripture, right? And there are a number of other questions in, in this chapter, rhetorical questions, to, to which the answer is obviously there's no other God that reminds the people of Israel just who the Lord is. You see the same thing in Isaiah chapter 64. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no one, nor ear has perceived, nor eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Look around you. How many people in our culture have this confidence of knowing that God is willing and able to communicate to them. Knowing and understanding that and knowing who God is is revolutionary. It changes your life because it changes you from one mode, one paradigm of living to another paradigm of living. From a paradigm, a mode of living where everything is about you and what you can do, what you can't do, you screwed up, you failed, or you succeeded, that kind of paradigm to a paradigm where you are convinced that God is in actively engaged in your life and that your job is not to make things happen as much as it is to listen to Him and follow in His agenda and then, ex and then experience the blessing that He has for you. Totally different paradigms, totally different modes of living. And of course, Moses here has to talk about the need to obey God. You know, again, not a real user-friendly kind of a notion because obeying means that you understand that someone is superior. Duh. Beginning of this chapter... Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live. And this idea of listening and guarding God's commandments is repeated in Deuteronomy over and over and over and over again. Verse 9, only be careful, watch yourself closely that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen. Let me skip and to come to verse 40. Keep his decrees so that it may go well with you and your children after you that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God gives you for all, for all times. This notion of being careful 
to obey God's Torah is something that Moses repeats over and over and over again in Deuteronomy. Why? Because Israel is like us, we tend to forget. You know, again, remember, the nation said, yeah, God, everything you said we will do. Yeah, everything you said we will do. Yeah, everything you said we will do. And then a short time later, oh, well, uh, uh, we're not sure about you, God. Um, this uh, golden calf here is the one who brought us out of Egypt. Now, we snicker and we think that we realize that this is the absolutely stupidest thing that a person can do until we realize how much like the nation of Israel we are. How that we are passionate for God and yes, God will do this, this, and then we slide into difficult circumstances and then we say, okay, let's see now. Who is my God here? And how do I fix things? Since God is not coming through, I need to do something to fix this situation. That is why Moses is giving some very strong language here in, in this passage and the rest of Deuteronomy. Carefully obey God's Torah, God's instruction. Cleave to him. Stick to him like, like glue. Then at that point, Moses um, switches gears And um, things go, get really grim here for, for a little while. Um, verse 25, after you've lived in the land a long time, if then you become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking him to anger, I will call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that you will quickly perish from the land that you're crossing the Jordan possess the Lord will scatter you among the peoples etc 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 say whoa okay well let's see let me flip to the to the fun parts of, of the good book here you know to the good stories and so on I am done here until we realize that this is in there for our learning why is that? Well, think about it. God simply says to us, if you choose to be stupid, which we do from time to time, there are consequences. First of all, natural consequences. And if you continue in your stupidity, in your sin, I will have to act <coughs> and discipline you and punish you because otherwise... My word is not worth spit. And I will have to engage somewhat severely with you if you prove yourself to be stubborn and stubborn and foolish. And that is what happened with Israel. What we have to remember, though, folks, is God waited about 400 years before he unleashed his, the, the real anger he had towards his people. That's a long time after sending all kinds of messengers again and again and again and again. Again, remember, folks, that God's preferred mode is that of mercy. 
And he only shifts into discipline and anger if we determine that we know better and we decide to be stupid. But at least for me, what, what saves the day, as it were, what encourages me is not me. Because I, I am under absolutely no illusion about my own goodness. And I don't think any one of us here can stand up and say, you know, I, when I make a commitment, I always 100% keep it. I make my commitment to God, I always keep it. And then I want to step away from you and see what will happen. It gives me a great deal of security because there's worked in God works into the system the reality of the fact that we will do things stupidly. And he can handle it. He can handle it, folks. He can handle it. Again, he is merciful and and he is our redeemer. So that we, we don't have to worry, oh, did I do the right thing? Should I have said this? I could have done better. Oh, you, you know, is God angry with me? Did I do something wrong? Well, the short version is, yes, you probably did something wrong. Yes, you probably did do something stupid. So what? So what? How big is your God? How big is your God? Can he not handle the foolish things that you do. Is his hand shortened that he cannot save? I, it, you know, the, is he limited? The short version is, of course, no. And then we come back to the verse that we read from the very beginning. Verse 23 and 24. And where, when from there you call out to God. From there, meaning where God has allowed you to slip into the pit. From there you seek the Lord your God. You will find him if you look for him with all your heart. So yes, are there expectations that you and I will make mistakes? You bet. But is that where we park? Is that where, where our security is? If that's where your security is, I really feel sorry for you. Because what that means is that you're going through a perpetual process of trying to review the tapes of what you said, what you did every single day in order to figure out what you did wrong and how to fix it. That is crazy making. If on the other hand you realize that God is greater than that, then you are set free from that and you say, God, teach me what you want me to learn from, from what I just did. Why? Because you remember who your God is. You remember what God had done for you in the past, how God has pulled you out of the pit 
how God has worked with you. And then you are committed to sticking to him, cleaving to him like glue. And you once and for all reject a lie that you're like the frog that falls into a vat of cream. You've heard the story. You have a couple of frogs that fall into a vat of cream. One just gives up and dies and falls through. The other one just huffs and puffs. And eventually, uh, this becomes solidified and they come to the surface. Well, uh, interesting story. Really doesn't work that way in our life, does it? Remember who your God is. Cleave to him. Keep his commandments. And then watch and see what he will do. Let's pray. Abba Father, we stand before you greatly humbled, recognizing, Lord, that there's absolutely no reason why you should accept us. That there's nothing, Lord, that we bring to the table that is attractive and wonderful and, and that um, is all persuasive. But Lord, uh, we thank you, Lord, that you know us, you understand us. Intimately, you know all our ups and downs, our weaknesses and our sins, that nothing is beyond you. That you are able to redeem fully and completely that you're able to complete the work that you have begun in each one of us. And Lord God, we simply pray that you would do so. Lord God, that you would take our eyes off ourselves and put them squarely on you. Lord, where we have fallen into hopelessness, we pray that you give us new hope. Remind us, Lord, of your activity in times past. Challenge us, Lord God, by your spirit to trust you more fully and to press towards the mark of what you have prepared for us, Lord. Lord God, we pray for the hearts of courage, heart of courage for each one of us, Lord, to follow you as Caleb did wholeheartedly, Lord. Pray that you have received much honor and glory in our life. In Yeshua's name. Amen.